Welcome to the GDPR Weekly Show, one of the top five GDPR podcasts worldwide. Here is what's coming up in this week's episode. Welcome to episode 147 of the GDPR Weekly Show. And coming up in this week's show, we have news that the Conservative Party here in the UK has been fined £10,000 for sending emails to people who didn't want to receive them. We then travel to the Irish Republic and get an update from the Garda on the Irish Health Service data breach. And then we travel to Japan, where it's been revealed this week that the Tokyo Olympics might be affected by the Fujitsu data breach. Then we return to the UK, where there's been a data breach at South Church High School in South End in Essex. And then we travel to America to bring you an update on the data breach which affected the Colonial Oil Pipeline. And then to India, where we have an update on the Air India data breach and legal action being taken by an Air India passenger. We then return to the UK, where the UK High Court has this week clarified the responsibilities and liabilities of UK and EU GDPR agents. And we then travel to California, where Strips Health has had a data breach. We then have news of a data breach at AMT Games, who produced the popular Battle for the Galaxy game. And we then travel to Australia, where we have the results of a survey into data breaches at Australia and New Zealand businesses. We then travel to Washington in the US, where the Senate is to debate a Social Media Data Protection Act. And we then travel to Germany and look at enforcement action being taken by data protection authorities across Germany. We then have news of Matt Srems and his NOYB organisation and its fight against cookies and the use of cookie banners. And then finally this week we have news that the EDPB has approved codes of conduct for cloud service providers. So as always a good mix of articles for you this week here on the GDPR Weekly Show. If you have any feedback for us please do email us at feedback at gdprweeklyshow.com. We do read every single piece of feedback we receive and wherever possible we incorporate your suggestions and improvements into the show. Unfortunately due to the large volume of feedback we receive it's not always possible for us to respond to each piece of feedback individually. Want to ask GDPR questions live? Come and join our GDPR surgery on Clubhouse, Thursday, 4pm UK time. Here in the UK, the Conservative Party has been fined £10,000 for sending dozens of emails in Boris Johnson's name to people who said they didn't want to receive them. It was a serious breach of data laws, the Information Commissioner's Office, the ICO, said following its investigation. It's understood that emails were sent addressed to the recipients by name over eight days in July 2019, when Mr Johnson had become party leader and Prime Minister. The emails laid out the Tories' priorities, including on Brexit, the NHS and police officer numbers, and urged people to join the Conservative Party. In its investigation, the ICO found that the Conservative Party had switched email provider and so had not properly recorded that in 51 cases, subscribers had asked to be removed from their marketing list. During the investigation, the party carried out an industrial-scale marketing email exercise during the December 2019 UK general election, where nearly 23 million emails were sent and a further 95 complaints were raised. Steve Leckersley, ICO Director of Investigations, said the public have rights when it comes to how their personal data is used for marketing. Getting messages to potential voters is important in a healthy democracy, but political parties must follow the law when doing so. The Conservative Party ought to have known this, but failed to comply with the law. All organisations, be they political parties, businesses or others, should give people clear information and choices about what is being done with their personal data. Direct marketing laws are clear and it is responsibility of all organisations to ensure that they comply. The sending of nuisance marketing emails is a real concern to the public and the ICO will continue to take action where we find behaviour that puts people's information rights at risk. 
The ICO said that out of 1,190,280 Martin emails sent by the Conservative Party between the 24th and 31st of July 2019, it was not possible to say for certain how many were validly sent because the party has not been able to provide sufficient or clear evidence as to the extent to which lawful and valid consent was provided for all of those emails. The ICO accepted that some would have been sent legitimately, especially to Conservative Party members, but 549,030 non-members received emails where consent would be required. The ICO added that it was not the first time concerns had been raised over the Conservative Party's handling of personal data. It also said the party had been slow to respond to the investigation and had repeatedly failed to provide responses within time periods set, even when those time periods had subsequently been extended. Stay home, stay safe. If you're a regular listener to the Detail Weekly Show, you might remember back in episode 144, we mentioned about a major data breach affecting the Irish Health Service. This week there's been an update with the Garda leading the investigation into the cyber attack, issuing a warning to the public as data has appeared online. The HSE confirmed last Friday that data from at least 520 patients has now appeared online. Detective Chief Superintendent Paul Cleary of the Jada National Cybercrime Bureau said the Jada were continuing their probe to find the hackers. Speaking in a video on Twitter, Mr Cleary sought to advise people of the dangers of the data breach. The recent HSE cyber attack has highlighted the crippling effect cybercrime can have on an organisation or business, he said. Following confirmation from the HSC that some personal data breach has been published online, our advice would be that if you are contacted by a person stating that they have your personal information and they're looking for you to confirm your bank account details, you should not engage with them or provide any further information. You should instead report the matter immediately to your local data station. The Garda National Cyber Crime Bureau is continuing its criminal investigations. The HSC ransomware attack would include international law enforcement partners, he said. Cleary gave advice to the public about the attack and how to follow some simple strategies to prevent them becoming a victim of scams. While the focus is on cyber security, we're asking members of the public, business owners and ICT managers to take the opportunity to review your online safety and security, he said. If in doubt, follow the five cyber safety steps. 1. Don't open the attachment or links from emails or text messages unless you're sure you know and trust the source. 2. Don't mix data from your work and personal online activity. 3. Be careful when using remote access methods to your company network. 4. Only use official sources to update antivirus software and your computer system patches. And 5. Have a safe and up-to-date backup which is kept separate from the network of computer systems. If we have any further update on this from the Irish Garda, we will of course bring it to you in the next available episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. If you listened to last week's episode of the GDPR Weekly Show, you'll doubtless remember us mentioning about a data breach involving Fujitsu. Well, this week it became apparent that the organising committee for the Tokyo Olympics has become the latest to be hit by the data breach through unauthorised access to the information sharing tool developed by Fujitsu. It is understood that personal information was leaked from a total of about 170 people involved in security management and are participating in a drill hosted by Japan's National Cyber Security Centre to brace for potential cyber attacks during the sporting event. Data breaches have also been found in other government agencies including the National Centre for Incident Readiness and Strategy for Cyber Security and the Foreign Ministry. With around 50 days to go before the Olympics opens in Tokyo, the organisers and government continue to ramp up efforts to prevent cyber attacks from disrupting the Games. 
The centre declined to comment on whether the leaked information was related to the Games and said it has not confirmed any disruptions in the operations of any of the organisations targeted. It is understood that the leaked information included names, business titles and affiliations of the participants belonging to about 90 organisations, including the organising body of the Olympics and Paralympics, ministries, local governments, hosting venues such as Tokyo and Fukushima Prefecture, and sponsors of the Games. Takahito Takahita, the president of Fujitsu, which is also contracted to oversee clients' computer systems, apologised the same day to Olympic Minister Tamayeo Maruuka for the data breach. Fujitsu said in late May that the data of several of its corporate clients had been compromised due to unauthorised access to the tool, which is used to share information between internal and external parties of a company. The leak is believed to be likely due to a malware infection. If we receive any further update on this either from Fujitsu or from the organising committee of the Tokyo Olympics, we will of course bring it to you in the next available episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. Contact us on helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com or phone us on 0800 808 5312. Back to the UK and to Essex now, where a mum has blown the whistle after receiving two emails about students at South Church High School in South End, which had been sent by teachers. One email included details about the safeguarding of a student. The mum, who didn't want to be named, has slammed the school for allowing the breach to happen twice and fears details about her child could be released next. She said the first time the first email was sent was back in October last year. It was basically telling off another teacher for not dealing with a safeguarding issue immediately. The email included the name of the student. The second breach was the teacher who listed all the names of 49 students who are off timetable. Some reasons to be off timetable could be for exams, but also for medical or social reasons. The mother said she replied to both emails saying that she needed to be removed from these because it was a breach, and the second time she had a reply saying thankfully it was only names. She said, I'm feeling really angry because that first time was a massive breach and I would have thought they'd make sure it didn't happen again. It doesn't matter if it's only names, it's not okay and it's breaching the law. If it was one of my children, I would be upset. It does worry me about information on my children being leaked. Mr Reynolds, head teacher at South Church High School, said the ICO are who we report data breaches to. They have said there's no threat to rights or freedoms, we take data protection seriously and we follow trust protocols in dealing with data breaches. The ICO have reviewed the breaches and that's where they've said there are no threats to rights or freedoms. Whenever we have anything like this we review our protocols in the store and it doesn't happen often. I will not be making any further comment. Back in episode 144, we told you about the cyber attack which had affected the colonial pipeline in the US and had a serious effect on petrochemical supplies for a number of days in the USA. A few more details of what happened have now been revealed, including details of how Colonial paid the hackers to retrieve their information. It's understood that the ransom paid by Colonial was $4.4 million paid in Bitcoin. Colonial said it had hired Rob Lee, the founder and chief executive officer of the Dragos Inc., a cyber security firm that focuses on industrial control systems, and John Strand, owner and security analyst at Black Hills Information Security, to consult on its cyber defences and to focus on warding off future attacks. It is understood that the hack was a result of a single compromised password. Hackers gained entry into the networks of Colonial Pipeline Co. on April the 29th through a virtual private network account, which allowed employees to remotely access the company's computer network. The account was understood to no longer be in use at the time of the attack, but could still be used to access Colonial's network. 
The account's password has since been discovered inside a batch of leaked passwords on the dark web. That means that a colonial employee may have used the same password on another account that was previously hacked. The VPN account, which has since been deactivated, didn't use multi-factor authentication, allowing the hackers to breach Colonial's network using just a compromised username and password. It is not known whether the hackers obtained the username or if they just hit upon it by trial and error. The company said we did a pretty exhaustive search of the environment to try and determine how the hackers got those credentials. We don't see any evidence of phishing for the employee's credentials were used. We've not seen any other evidence of attacker activity before April the 29th. It's understood that a little more than one week later on May the 7th, an employee in Colonial's control room saw a ransom note demanding cryptocurrency appear on their computer just before 5am. The employee notified an operations supervisor who immediately began to start the process of shutting down the pipeline, Colonial Chief Executive Joseph Blount said in an interview. By 6.10am the entire pipeline had been shut down. It was the first time Colonial shut down the entirety of its gasoline pipeline system in its 57-year history, Blount said. He said we had no choice at that point, it was absolutely the right thing to do. At that time we had no idea who was attacking us or what their motives were. Colonial began resuming service on May the 12th. Soon after the attack, Colonial embarked on an exhaustive examination of the pipeline, tracking 29,000 miles on the ground and through the air to look for visible damage. The company ultimately determined that the pipeline wasn't damaged. In the meantime, Mandiant was sweeping the network to understand how far hackers had probed while installing new detection tools that would alert Colonial of any follow-on attacks. In the wake of the attack on his company, Blount said he would like the US government to go after the hackers who have found safe haven in Russia. Ultimately, the government needs to focus on the actors themselves. As a private company, we don't have political capability of shutting down the host countries that have these bad actors in them, he said. Want to ask GDPR questions live? Come and join our GDPR surgery on Clubhouse, Thursday, 4pm UK time. A couple of weeks ago, we brought in news of a data breach affecting Air India. And this week, it emerged that an Air India customer has sought damages of 1.5 million rupees from the airline over the recent data breach, which affected nearly 4.5 million passengers, including himself. Zaman Ali, a Mumbai-based advocate, served a notice sent to Air India management on Monday in which he says the airline informed him about the breach on May the 25th. Asked if he had sought damages for himself or on behalf of all the affected Air India passengers, Ali said, I have filed for damages for myself apart from seeking a government probe into the data leak. The breach involved personal data registered between August 26, 2011 and 2021, with details that included name, date of birth, contact information, passport information, ticket information, star reliance and Air India frequent flyer data, but no passwords were affected, as well as credit card data. However, in respect to the last type of data, it's understood that CW and CVC numbers are not involved. Ali's notice to Air India seeking compensation under the IT and Consumer Protection Act says the sensitive data breached is extremely private as it includes date of birth, personal contact details, passport details, ticket information and credit card details. Ali went on to say this could very likely lead to cloning and constructing duplicate passport, credit card, fake ID cards etc. There are innumerable instances of this actually having occurred after massive data breaches of this kind across the globe. The seriousness of such a massive breach therefore ought not to be discounted or undermined. The notice says, You are liable to pay damages for causing wrongful loss of my information or autonomy, loss of my privacy, loss of control over my data, and for distress and mental injury, for which I call upon you to monetarily compensate me with an amount of 1.5 million rupees within 10 days from the date of receipt of this notice. 
Any non-compliance at the present notice will invite serious civil consequences since issues of basic fundamental rights can no longer be taken for granted. In response, on whether it will pay compensation or damages to airlines and or passengers affected by the data breach, CETA's Global Head of Communications, Edna Amy Yahill, said specific contractual provisions agreed between airlines and CETA for the supply of CETA services are confidential between the parties to the relevant contract. If we receive any update on this from Air India, we will, of course, bring it to you in a future episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. An important ruling in the High Court in London this week, Mrs Justice Collins Rice ruled that organisations that act in a representative capacity for foreign businesses under data protection laws in Europe do not be held liable for the actions of those data controllers. Now, of course, this is really important because we've mentioned several times here on recent episodes of the GDPR Weekly Show about the need for UK companies who have clients in the EU but no permanent place of business in the EU to appoint an EU agent and likewise for EU companies who have UK customers but no permanent place of business in the UK to appoint UK agents to satisfy the requirements for GDPR since Brexit. But what has been a little hazy perhaps is what liability the agent has and this judgment this week from Mrs Justice Collins Rice seeks to clarify that situation. As we just mentioned under Article 27 of the UK GDPR Controllers or processes that are not established in the UK, but nevertheless process UK citizens' personal data for the purposes of offering goods or services or monitoring their behaviour, must designate in writing a representative in the UK subject to limited exceptions. Tasks of the designated representative include liaising with data subjects and regulators. The obligation to appoint the representative does not apply to public sector bodies. In the case being considered in the High Court, businessman Sanzo Rondon argued that UK-based LexisNexis Risk Solutions was liable for alleged breaches of data protection law by the US-based data controller it represents under UK GDPR, World Compliance Inc. World Compliance operates a substantial database of profiles on individuals which it enables subscribers to access. The database is designed to support businesses in complying with anti-money laundering and counter-terrorist financing laws. Rondon said that he objected to the creation of a profile about him and asked the court to require LexisNexis Risk Solutions to act to ensure that its data was erased and that others on World Compliance's database were notified that profiles had been created about them. He also asked the court to order LexisNexis Risk Solutions to compensate him for the alleged data protection breaches. However, Rondon's claim was struck out by the judge after she found there was no basis in law for it to be brought against LexisNexis Risk Solutions in its capacity as data representative. The judges considered the wording of GDPR as well as guidelines issued by the European Data Protection Board prior to reaching their decision. Among other faults she found with the case brought by Rondon, the judge considered there was a practical issue with the concept of representative liability. Standing the control with shoes for enforcement purposes implies representatives' ability to provide, or require the controller to provide, remedies which involve direct access to and operations on the personal data themselves, Mrs Justice Collins Rice said. That includes rectification and erasure of data and giving subject access not just to ancillary information, but to the actual data. That is nowhere discernibly provided for in the GDPR or in the UK 2018 Data Protection Act. The judge also considered the perspective of the UK's Data Protection Authority, the ICO, on the scope of liability of data representatives. She said the ICO has no expectation of holding representatives liable or available for enforcement purposes other than those clearly provided in relation to their own bespoke functions and in providing cooperative assistance. So a very important judgment there, I think. 
and one which will doubtless be used as president as we move forward with the whole concept of EU and UK agents. Contact us on helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com or phone us on 0800 808 5312. To California now, and a Californian healthcare provider is informing more than 147,000 people that their personal data may have been exposed in a recent cyber attack. Scripps Health, which operates five acute care hospitals in San Diego, amongst other facilities, took most of its network offline after detecting a ransomware infection at the beginning of May 2021. The San Diego-based non-profit system suspended access to several applications, including MyScripts and Scripps.org website. While the majority of Scripps networks have now been restored, the attack caused four weeks of disruption, with patient appointments having to be cancelled or rescheduled. Employees were forced to rely on offline documentation methods and ambulances had to be diverted causing a surge of patients at other local facilities. After learning that personally identifiable information, PII, was exposed in the attack, Scripps has begun the process of notifying 147,267 individuals that their information may have been compromised. Data exposed is understood to include health information, social security numbers, driver's license numbers and financial information. In a letter mailed to patients on Tuesday this week, Scripps stated that an investigation into the security incident had determined that an unauthorised person had gained access to the healthcare provider's network and exfiltrated copies of some documents before deploying ransomware. The company said, importantly, this incident did not result in unauthorised access to Scripps electronic medical record application EPIC. However, health information and personal financial information was acquired through other documents stored on our network. Scripps said that while it had not found evidence that any of the exposed data had been used to commit fraud, it would be offering credit monitoring to some individuals affected by the attack. For the less than 2.5% of individuals with social security number and or driver's license number were involved, we will be providing complimentary credit monitoring and identity protection support services, the company said. The investigation into what documents were exposed is ongoing, and Scripps said the number of individuals whose data was breached could rise. We have kicked off an extensive manual review of those documents. This is a time-intensive process that will likely take several months, but we will notify affected individuals and entities as quickly as possible in accordance with the applicable regulatory requirements, the company said. AMT Games, which produces the popular title Battle for the Galaxy, has accidentally leaked nearly 6 million player profiles after misconfiguring a cloud database. It is understood that the misconfiguration exposed 1.5 terabytes of data via an Elasticsearch server. The data contained 5.9 million player profiles, 2 million transactions and 587,000 feedback messages. Profiles typically feature player IDs, usernames, country, total money spent on the game and Facebook, Apple or Google account data if the user links these with their game account. Feedback messages contain account IDs, feedback ratings and users' email addresses. At the same time, the transaction data includes price, item purchase, time of purchase, payment provider and sometimes the buyer's IP address. AMT Games has warned exposed users that their data might be picked up by opportunistic cyber criminals searching for misconfigured databases. It is understood that the company has now disabled access to the database. Want to ask GDPR questions live? Come and join our GDPR surgery on Clubhouse, Thursday, 4pm UK time. To Australia now, and a survey of Australian and New Zealand businesses by security firm Thales has found that nearly half of the businesses have experienced a data breach in the past 12 months. The company's latest annual global data threat report 
found that 47% of businesses within Australia and New Zealand who responded to the survey had experienced a data breach in the past 12 months and that more than 55% of organisations in Australia and New Zealand have seen an increase in the volume, severity and or scope of cyber attacks in the past 12 months. Nearly 64% of Australia and New Zealand businesses have experienced a breach in the past with malware and ransomware some of the most common threats facing the businesses. The research also found that only one in four Australian New Zealand businesses can fully classify their data and half of businesses have failed a compliance audit in the past 12 months. Just 23% of Australian New Zealand organisations had complete understanding of where their data is stored. One factor responsible for these difficulties is the increase in volume of data being stored in the cloud. In the Asia-Pacific region, 31% of respondents have 41-50% to 50% of their data stored in an external cloud and a quarter of more than half of their data in the cloud. The most popular methods of securing sensitive data in the cloud include encryption, key management and tokenization of data. Fails Australia New Zealand Director of Cloud Protection and Licensing Activities Brian Grant said an increase in reliance on multi-cloud environments and a growing number of cyber threats is making data security more challenging. It is concerning that a large number of organisations still don't know where all their data is stored or are failing compliance audits in particular as those are just the first step to achieving effective cyber protection, he said. This is why embedded security through data anonymization and zero-trust strategies needs to be prioritised if we want to future-proof our digitised economy, guarantee privacy and in the process avoid costly cyber incidents and data breach remediations. Stay home, stay safe. To the Senate in America now, where Senator Amy Klobuchar, a Democrat from Minnesota, and a trio of her colleagues have reintroduced a bill to protect people's privacy when their data is collected by big tech companies like Facebook, Twitter and Google. Senator Klobuchar originally proposed the bill in 2018 with Senator John Kennedy and again in 2019 when the Senate was under Republican control. The legislation, known as the Social Media Privacy Protection and Consumer Rights Act, would compel companies to allow people to opt out of tracking and collection. It's understood that the bill failed to gain any traction the first two times it was introduced, though plenty has changed in the last few years. Social media companies have come under greater scrutiny due to their market power, data selection and privacy practices, and Congress has held several hearings to question big tech firms on these issues. In a statement, Klobuchar said, For too long, companies have profited off Americans' online data while consumers have been left in the dark. This legislation will protect and empower consumers by allowing them to make choices about how companies use their data and inform them of how they can protect personal information. The bill also states that if a user closes an account, companies would have 30 days to delete the user's data unless some other law compels them to keep it. The bill also prescribes what companies must do if they suffer a data breach or if personal data somehow leaks out in violation of a company's privacy policy. Within 72 hours of a breach or leak, a company has to notify its users of the incident, send a reminder of the ability to opt out or close their account, allow them to request their data to be deleted, and provide them a full copy of the data that's been collected, including a list of the other parties with whom it's been shared. Should the legislation pass, it would be enforced jointly by the Federal Trade Commission and the State Attorney General. Doubtless this will roll on through 2021, and so we will bring you updates on it whenever we can, here on the GDPR Weekly Show. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. If you're a regular listener to the GDPR Weekly Show, you'll know that we've mentioned how regulated authorities like the ICO here in the UK are increasingly looking not just at data breaches, but at other GDPR breaches 
and seeking penalties where those breaches occur. This week, it's been announced that the supervisory authorities of Berlin, Hamburg, Brandenburg, Bremen, Lower Saxony, Rhineland-Palatinati, Baden-Württemberg, Bavaria and the Saarland will contact selected companies and ask them about specific topics of GDPR. The common questionnaire, which serves as a basis, includes, for example, topics of sending emails, hosting websites, web tracking, managing applicant data, and the internal exchange of customer and employee data. It's understood that the regulatory authorities will then use the answers to these surveys to determine which areas they should focus their attention on during the next two or three years. It is hoped that the results of the survey will be made public, and if they are, then we will, of course, bring them to you in a future episode of the GDPR Week Show. On the 31st of May, Matt Srem's organisation, NOYB, launched a campaign aimed at ending what they dramatically referred to as the Cookie Banner Terror. The campaign was spearheaded by sending over 560 draft complaints to companies who, in their view, use unlawful cookie banners. Matt Srem's organisation, NOYB, has created a software that automatically identifies what they call violation types. It notes that this system has the capability of generating up to 10,000 complaints over the course of 2021 and has indicated that it would be focusing their attention on the most visited websites in Europe. Companies are provided with an informal draft complaint via email along with a step-by-step guide on how to change software settings when using OneTrust as a consent management platform. The violation types they've identified are violation type A, a no-reject option. According to NOYB, users are legally required to be given a clear yes-no option in providing their consent. In terms of cookies, NOYB takes the view that cookie banners that do not have a reject option on the first layer are therefore considered non-compliant. In other words, NOYB seems to argue that valid consent is only achieved in the context of cookies if users are provided with a clear option to reject cookies in the first layer of the banner. GDPR, however, does not prescribe a reject option as such to be provided at the time consent has been obtained and in any event it's arguable whether a reject option is required to be implemented in the first layer cookie banner as long as there's a way to provide consent. Violation type B is what NOYB are saying are pre-tick boxes on the second layer. NOYB contests that the use of pre-tick boxes to, to obtain consent and makes the point that pre-tip boxes found in cooking consent platforms, for example in the settings section, should be removed so that the default option for users is to have to take an active choice to opt into cookies. Indeed, GDPR, of course, provides that consent should be given by clear affirmative action, and the recitals outline that pre-tip boxes should not constitute consent. This view is shared by the European Data Protection Board, EDPB. However, this would not apply to cookies, so it is exempt from the consent requirement. Violation type C is what NOYB is calling deceptive link design. NOYB challenges the use of a hyperlink instead of a button in terms of functionality for rejecting cookies. In its view, users are likely to perceive this hyperlink as not being an actual option compared to the other options that are offered as buttons. In other words, NOYB considers that users have no genuine choice and are essentially forced into clicking accept all, and therefore they're misled in giving their consent. Now, whilst that's an interesting point, whether the design of a link results in a breach of GDPR is questionable. On one level, the GDPR does not provide a format for how consent should be obtained, or how, and when the option to refuse should be offered. Companies are free to choose the appropriate format and design for and provision of a link, and for some users this may be a way to allow them to effectively give control over which cookies and processing activities they wish to accept or refuse. Violation types D and E, deceptive button colours and button contrast, 
NOYB claims that contrast between button colours on cuckoo banners results in invalid consent and a violation of the principles of fairness and transparency, as the website users may be entitled to give consent if your set button, for example, might be green and the not set button is red or just grey. Again, GDPR is silent on this, and so it's not clear whether there would actually be a breach of GDPR simply by having buttons in different colours. Violation type H is what NOYB at all in legitimate interest claimed. NOYB says that legitimate interest in the context of cookies indicate that any option in which users can opt to rely on legitimate interest should be removed from the cookie banner. Under the privacy directive, consent, as opposed to legitimate interest, is required for the storage of and access to non-essential cookies, and as such reference should not be made to legitimate interest in the banner. NOYB does not, however, appear to have addressed subsequent processing of data gained via cookies, including the most appropriate lawful grounds to rely on in this context. Violation type I is what NOYB are calling the inaccurate classification of cookies. NOIB seems to argue that some companies have incorrectly classified cookies and points out that, for example, cookies relating to statistics and advertising are not strictly necessary as defined under the privacy directive. Now, this one really is tricky because different data protection authorities across Europe have put different weight on what they consider to be essential and non-essential cookies. And finally, NOIB has identified what it calls violation type K, which is not as easy to withdraw consent as it was to give it. Now, this is where it gets complicated, again, because whilst GDPR does state that it must be as easy to withdraw as to give consent in the first place, the law is silent on whether in practice withdrawal must always be done through the same action or in the same format as used for obtaining consent. It'll be interesting to see what the results of this aggressive campaign by NOYB actually turn out to be, and we hope to be speaking to a spokesman from NOYB in a future episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. Want to ask GDPR questions live? Come and join our GDPR surgery on Clubhouse, Thursday, 4pm UK time. The European Data Protection Board has recently given the green light to two codes of conduct for the cloud industry. The EDPB approved the codes of conduct on cloud service providers and cloud infrastructure on Thursday, the 20th of May. The two codes have been developed by industry leaders to provide a blueprint for compliance with the EU's data protection regulation, GDPR, in the cloud environment and are the first of their kind to be formally approved by the EDPB. EDPB Chair Andrea Jelinek said, We welcome the efforts made by the code owners to elaborate codes of conduct, which are practical, transparent and potentially cost-effective tools to ensure greater consistency amongst the sector and foster data protection compliance. In its updated industrial strategy, the European Commission indicated cloud computing as a key area of vulnerability. Only 36% of EU companies use cloud computing and use it for very basic services such as email storage. The codes are intended to increase transparency and trust in the European cloud computing market, boosting intra-providers' competition based on fair principles. Both codes constitute independent monitoring bodies that will ensure their application is GDPR compliant. The monitoring bodies will provide external auditing and will be accredited by the relevant data protection authority. The EU Cloud Code of Conduct is intended for cloud service providers to provide guidance in their data protection compliance and secure trust from cloud customers. It therefore covers software as a service and counts among its subscribers Alibaba Cloud, Cisco, Dropbox, Google Cloud, Microsoft and IBM. Contact us on helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com or phone us on 0800-808-5312. The GDPR Weekly Show is an insurance production.
Until next time, bye-bye.